0: Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark. and a first-timer for the Book Club, it's a very warm welcome to Robert Hagan. Good morning, Robert.
1: Hi Eamon, it's great to be with you this morning.
0: I should have checked before we started, am I pronouncing your surname correctly?
1: You are, yes. <laughs> it's, it is tricky, some, uh, yes. Uh, funny enough, my, my son had a teacher who's had the same name, but it was she pronounced it Hagen. Oh, right. Okay. But it, but it is Hagen. <laughs> um, so, Robert,
0: let's start off as ever with the 2000 AD or comic origin stories. What are your
1: earliest memories of comics? Wow. Okay. Well, really going back to the early 70s, um, I actually do remember what I don't know. Have you read David Roach's book Yes. on the masters of? Yes. Yeah. He he has a chapter actually on nursery comics. Oh, right, yeah. Which which is kind of quite unusual to actually include in in the history of sort of British comic artists. But I can actually remember some of those nursery comics when I was very, very young. And that was kind of almost like the gateway drug that would sort of led into other things later on. So I do remember things like the Beano, for example, very early on, Walt Disney comics, very early on. And then in 1977, and I would have only been six at the time, A friend of mine at school said that he'd heard about this comic called 2000 AD that was coming out. um, And he was very excited about buying this comic. And I had not heard of it at all. I had no idea what it was. And I happened to have in my pocket seven pence. And 2000 AD was eight pence, I think, (laughs) from from what I remember. And I had seven pence. And I asked my dad if he would lend me one pence And back in those days, or one penny, I should say, in 1977, one penny may not sound a lot, but actually it was quite a lot. Uh, And and my dad was the sort of person who just didn't give you money unless it was, well, you have to wait till your pocket money day, that sort of thing. But he actually did give me the penny on that occasion. And so I did buy the first copy of 2000 AD. And um, of course, at the time, being six years of age, we were both, my, my friend and I, both very attracted to the Space Spinner, and uh ripped the, the the space spinner totally off the cover <laughs> you know uh, uh all comic book fans will be shrieking in horror yeah <laughs> you know, the, the cover was gone <laughs> straight away uh no concept of the fact that if i just keep this neat in 30 years time i'll be able to sell it for stacks of money you know so just ripped the cover and uh and, and definitely enjoyed the comic but um in terms of, of what we're going to be talking about today, which is face ache, um, just to, to move on from that, 2000 AD, age of six, I do ha- remember having lots of nightmares, <laughs> right? <laughs> in particular about flesh, I think, you know, flesh, obviously quite a disturbing story if you're six years of age and you're not really sort of, your, your young mind is trying to comprehend cowboys being eaten by uh, dinosaurs. Um And my dad basically banned me from buying 2000 AD. Oh, no. Uh, So I, I, yeah, I got it from Prog 1 to Prog 22, I think, was the last one. Uh, Flesh had actually finished by then, funnily enough. But then he did ban me from buying it. And so kind of, uh, but... uh, I Buster because Buster was obviously a, a more sympathetic comic for a six or seven year old right. to be reading, <laughs> and and of course Buster was where face ache, uh was in, and Buster kind of at that stage really would have been my favourite comic for sure. Oh,
0: right, fascinating.
1: And nowadays,
0: do you keep up with the prog these
1: days? Uh, not really. I, I sort of I. I dip in. I to, I to to be honest, I went back to reading 2000 AD a few years later. Um, I, I had to ask my dad's permission to, <laughs> if I could buy it, and eventually I did start re- collecting it again. Um, but I stopped in the late 80s, and I would occasionally now buy things like some of the the graphic novels or the collections, you know, of stories. Uh, I have the Cursed Earth, uh, the, the sort of the uncensored version, for example. You know, if that's one of the things that, that I've got. Um, so I, I sort of, I'd, I'd certainly dip in and out. I've been listening to many of the stories that, uh, that you and your guests have talked about on, on your podcast, and I've mentioned to you as well, um, Space Spinner Two Thousand. I've been following that. Uh, they've actually now exceeded beyond right. where I stopped, <laughs> so it's quite hard to, to keep up with some of the stories which I've which I've never actually read. You know. But certainly I, I always had an interest in 2000 AD, just keep, you know, as I say, keep an eye out, buy the odd collection. Um, and most of the comics I now read are tend to be the American comics, to be honest. It's just, I suppose, because unfortunately we don't have a lot of British comics now, really. Sure.
0: OK, well, let's talk about a classic British comic, which you've mentioned already, because uh, we both have probably, I guess, a hardback edition from the Treasury of British Comics in 2017 of Facebook. Faceache Volume 1 The First Hundred Scrunches yes. By Ken Reed Couple of strips Written by Ian Manel, uh, From the pages Of Jet Originally And then Buster And Jet From the years This volume Covers 1971 To 73 Introductions mm-hmm. By Alan Moore Which we'll mention Later And by Ken Reed's Son Anthony J. Reed So Robert First of all Why have you chosen Faceache For the book club?
1: Well yeah As I say uh, Um I suppose it brought back some childhood memories in terms of having picked up Buster from up around 1977 onwards. Faceache was still very much one of the the top strips in the comic at the time. My favourite probably would have been the Leopard from Lime Street, or uh, or something like Ivor Loft and Tony Broke. Actually, I really liked that story, even though it's a very simple story about a uh, you know you you could. Write that on the back of a postage stamp about the conce the, the concept there of uh, the rich boy living next door to the poor boy. Actually, quite an realistic prospect, really, in terms of a housing situation. But actually, it, you know, it, it worked very effectively. But certainly Face would have been one of the, the my my favorite stories or, or one of the better stories. And I think whenever I saw it come out, I, I kind of knew that that Ken Reed was was well regarded. I remember Jonah which maybe I'll say a bit more about in a moment. Um, and uh, so, so it's was quite interested in picking this up just to see what it was like and see if it was as funny as I could remember. And actually, I think it was, I think it actually almost reads better now as an adult right. than whenever I was seven or eight years of age. So for anybody who doesn't know, give us a quick
0: introduction. Who is Face A? Tell us about the character and the the format of this book.
1: Yes, the format is is actually quite Useful to note. So it's maybe not typically like some of the other um collections that you may have been covering in the book club where you're f- maybe following a story which is proceeding along the the, the uh, I guess the breadth of, of the book. And typically in maybe five-page, six-page episodes, face are, are standalone uh little stories, one page, typically. Well, with Ken Reid, you you get your money's worth, let's just say, you know, it's oftentimes 12 to 18, maybe even 20 panels in length. You know, quite a lot actually crammed into the page, a lot of detail, a lot of writing, a lot of illustration. Uh, So each week you have a story which, you know, if you missed last week's story, it doesn't matter because the the next week's story is is self-contained. It's completely new. Um, and there's nothing really, you don't really need to know an awful lot of backstory other than the central conceit, which is this is a boy who can change his face or primarily his face. And certainly in the early episodes, it's his face into these uh, different contortions, I guess, um, and ways of looking. So his face suddenly changes, it can be a monster, uh, it could be like an animal, Um so it's a bit like the, the tradition of gurning, if you like, in the, the north of England. Yes, um, but taken taken to its nth degree and then some. <laughs> um, and eventually, actually, one of the things that evolves with Faec is that it's not just his face which changes, but his body shape changes. He can shrink. He can become very tall. Um, and basically, he's uh, the uh, however far that Ken Reed's imagination wants to take it. He he will just go go down that road, basically.
0: Yeah, fantastic, yes. And he is, as it says on the cover, the boy with a hundred faces, although later on, as you say, it becomes the body as well, and he can transform <laughs> himself into some weird Ken Reid creatures, can't he? Yes, definitely. So Ken Reid, um, you know, probably mentioned up there with Leo Baxendahl as one of these great mm. British comic cartoonists. Uh, born 1919, we know that... Um, always a keen artist, and that his father sort of bluffed him into an interview mm. with the Manchester Evening News, which led to one of his early strips. Uh, although that wasn't – I guess he didn't create – did he create The Adventures of Fudge the Elf himself, or was he just working on that?
1: Actually, I'm not sure myself on that one. Um, probably need to, to, to check that out. But uh, I'm, I'm sure there, there – I suppose one thing I, I should say here, uh, I suppose I'm coming to Ken Reid via – face sake and via Jonah. Right. Um, I didn't know an awful lot about his other stories. Um, it's been fascinating to actually do a little bit of background reading into some of the other stories, but I wouldn't be an expert. I'm, there, there may well be people who are listening to the, the podcast who know a lot more about Ken Reed than perhaps I or, or, or you do. But certainly Fudge the Elf, from what I've seen, is very different from his later work. Um, almost like at that point, he does seem to be like a hard hand, if you like, um, creating a story which is uh, in line with what the uh, the Manchester Evening News is looking for. Um, I mean, not to say that that he he didn't enjoy that. I think there was an interview that I was reading there that you know that he still sort of valued that work very much, um, but certainly very different from what I can tell anyway from his post uh, World War II work um and 50s and into the 60s in particular where he was uh often let his his imagination really was was quite extraordinary and uh we'll maybe talk about the oddhams comics but those were the ones which certainly from uh some of the things i've read and and from what alan moore says in his introduction uh the the where he, he really was allowed to he seems to have been unfettered in what he was able to do with the Oddham strips in the 1960s in particular
0: and he's i mean he worked for it seems most of the major british publishers mm. um before we get to Adams in the 60s i'll just mention dc thompson in the 1950s because yes. i hadn't realized until i read uh this that he co-created roger the dodger who's mm. another famous british comic character absolutely
1: yeah yeah I mean, no, I wasn't aware of that either because, again, I would have read The Beano in the 1970s and I don't think he was drawing Roger the Dodger in the 1970s from what I can recall. Um, And the one strip that I've seen of Ken reads of Roger the Dodger, again, it's quite benign compared with perhaps some of his other work, but absolutely perhaps in line with the values and vision of DC Thompson, you know, that more conservative kind of uh, approach to comics that you would see w- w- with uh, with DC Thompson uh, but yeah, it was certainly interesting to, to know that Rod- he was involved with Roger the Dodger, I-, I had no idea about that
0: No, fascinating, and then because as you say, he goes to work for Odoms in the 60s with Leo Baxendahl he creates Frankie Stein the Queen of the mm. Seas, Day Davy and worked on a series called The Nerves, but then mm. there's also this other series that I'm not familiar with called Jonah, which you mentioned in your
1: notes that's one that you have yeah. seen. Now, Jonah's a, quite an important one in my view. Now, funnily enough, we're talking about how he goes to Autumns and he is allowed almost, seems to be allowed almost free reign in terms of what he's doing. But prior to going to Autumns, he was actually doing Jonah for the Beano. So it was a DC Thompson comic. Um, but it was probably, uh, jo- Jonah was a, a cartoon which for, in terms of DC Thompson, it was probably as far as DC Thompson would let him go, I would imagine, you know, in terms of, again, the flights of fancy that that he was, he was doing. But so, so the setup for Jonah is, well, the, the name gives you a bit of a clue, but he's a sailor and every ship he sails on, he inadvertently manages to sink, um, which sounds like a conceit, which you probably get tired of after about three or four episodes, but because Reed's writing is so extraordinary and his characterization is so strange and vivid, um, he manages to keep this conceit going for years. <laughs> you know, with basically the same thing happening time and again. And actually, it's a really entertaining read if you've never actually read Jonah. Uh, and one of the things—it's interesting now to see that that Ken Reed's work is being um, collected. Uh, and one of the things that I probably quite like to do following on from this podcast is actually pick up the uh, Kazoop, is that right? The Kazoop collection with um, Derridae Devi Derrida, and, and the nerves in it, for example. Yes. So this is the power pack of Ken Reed, of which have been two yes.
0: volumes published so far. That's right. By a chap called the Povilica. I'm just, Apologies for pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, as you say, he's from the Kazoop blog. So there's two volumes of that, which is from the Odoms' work, I believe.
1: Yes, that's right. And very keen. Uh, the nerves, in particular, sounds uh, like a. Uh, I know that that it was a sort of a response to the, the numbskulls, and I know that uh, as you mentioned, that Kenry uh, didn't create it. But I've seen some of the work on that, and it looks extraordinary. Right. <laughs> again, some of his most extraordinary work, I think, and his most original work, and where he was allowed to pretty much do what he wanted, um, looks quite interesting. But to come back just briefly to Jonah. Now, Jonah. Obviously, I was too young to remember Jonah in the sixties but I first came across Jonah in a comic book called Buddy, which was a DC Thompson comic, which was probably around 1979, 1980 uh, that came out. And I couldn't tell you a lot about anything else that was in the comic. It was a, it was one of these comics where most of the stories were adventure stories, but then on the back page was the humor strip. And for Buddy, they reprinted Jonah and that's how I came across Jonah. And, and, that again, that was the most, that was the standout strip in Buddy. I probably stopped collecting Buddy after about 12 issues because the rest of it wasn't really worth it. But I, but the Jonah cartoon was actually really entertaining and that would have almost kept me going reading that. Um, and it, one of the things which I think is a shame with all these collections that are being made is, and I don't know how this works, maybe you have more insight into it. Eamon. Uh, but it's a shame that DC Thompson don't create um, collections. You know, it would be great if there was a Jonah collection. I think there would be a market for a Jonah collection. Um, a lot of people would be interested in that. But I, I, So I don't know all the ins and outs as to why or why not that, that hasn't happened. But certainly if you're not aware of Jonah Eamon, it's, that's one worth checking out, I would say. <laughs> right. And it, it is strange
0: that obviously the Treasury... Uh, are looking at the Fleetway and IPC back catalogue and seeing Mm. what's worth collecting and publishing. We've got some independents like uh, Hibernia Press and then Mm. uh, the Kazoop chap doing the power pack. Um, So some of the Odom's work has been collected. But the DC Thompson as yet, I'm surprised, as you say, they don't look at the success of some of these hardback collections and think we should be getting those out ourselves. Mm. Um, However, I suppose we're lucky that there are some... So there are other collections of Ken Reid available, Football Funnies, Worldwide Weirdies. There's Creepy (laughs) Creations, all from the Treasury of British Comics um 1971 he creates face ache which we're going to talk about and that of course runs right up until his death in 1987 where he literally mm. i think he he was working on a strip when he passed away and his son still the has son. the half completed page of face ache i think is that right
1: yes that, that's my understanding i think anthony lee talks about that in, in the forward yes um yeah for, uh, yeah very tragic but i guess it, Indicates um how invested he was actually in FaceAke as a story. Um a lot of these other stories lasted only a few years, but he, he did FaceAke for 16 years in total, um from 71 to 87. So um I don't know whether there was a drying up of opportunities for Ken Reed. Obviously, in, in the 80s, that wouldn't be surprising, the way that British comics were going, and maybe he felt FaceAke was the only thing he had to, to keep going with. I do remember a comic other things like Robot Smith, for example, was a was a comic called Jackpot in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and and he and did that particular cartoon strip, which I actually quite liked, but I don't think it was very popular at the time. Um, so he may not have had an awful lot of other opportunities to do things other than FaZe. Um, I don't really know much more than that, to be honest.
0: Well, let's turn back to this volume and, and talk about his work. Um, how would you describe his sort of black and white art uh, as it progresses through this volume of the first 100 scrunges?
1: Yeah, I mean, his work is is uh, striking, to say the least. You know, it's, um, it's vivid, um, it's imaginative, as I've mentioned. Um, it's so creative. Um, he's obviously got a great love of, or Ken Reed obviously had a great love of um, strange looking creatures <laughs> to say the least, you know, you've mentioned those two other collections, which were uh, kind of like one page posters, which I think were on the back of whoopee comic. Was that right? Yeah. Um, and so he loved these creating these odd, strange little creatures. Um, and and there's some fascinating names for the creatures actually that he has in this particular collection that, that that sometimes that face turns into, or or he's aware of Um, trying to look at some of the names of them, if I can see them. Yeah. The the Krakatoan crab cruncher, or the fuzzle headed gumpa. So there's, there's these very oddly named creatures that he comes up with and then creates these strange looking figures, you know, and that seems to be one of the things that he's, most invested in and he enjoys doing, or that would be apparent within his work. Um, but the work, one of the things I also noticed about this, because not all the strips are actually by Ken Reed. There's actually about a, 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 over a dozen at one point. Uh, there's a, there's a, about four consecutive strips in early 72 and then in the mid-1972, which seems to be by some other artist. And whenever you look at those strips you really notice the difference. Ken's work seems there's a clarity in his work. There's a um the, the images just jump out at you, really. Uh, um they, they seem cleaner almost the, the way that they're actually drawn. And so I don't want, want to be disrespectful to the other artist in terms of I don't actually know who it is. Um, but you can really notice the difference. Um his work is 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 much, much better. Um I mean, we'll maybe talk a little bit about some of the differences later if you want. There's an interesting, for example, between pages 54 and 59 in the collection, you you see on one side of the, on one page, you see Ken Reed's work. And then on the other page, you see this other artist's work. And it jumps out at you, the difference in terms of of the quality. Uh, But it's not just the artwork, in my opinion. It's actually the script and the characterization and the dialogue He's very good at dialogue. He, he, writes this, <laughs> he writes this kind of almost overly elaborate um, and convoluted kind of dialogue at times Ken read, which is actually very um, <laughs> fun to read and entertaining and um, really brings across the type of character that is uh, that conversing with within the, the, the text.
0: Right. I mean, yes. And I noticed in your notes... Talking about his writing, um, that you'd mentioned some certain classic British comic tropes to do with class and to do with sort of like the relationship with his father, but also the relationship with, I guess, school teachers and adults in authority. (laughs) These things crop up time and again, don't they?
1: Definitely. Uh, I, mean, I mean, one of the interesting things about the very first episode of Fasic, for example, he's introduced and there are a lot of, um, if if you're actually just reading the dialogue, there's a lot of apostrophes being used, you know, which is quite common in terms of, uh, you know, he doesn't say and, he says an. He's, he's born with a bendable bond, bonds you know, so he uses W-I-V instead of W-I-T-H, Um, in terms of just indicating this is um, I'm from, you know, I'm sort of working class lad from the streets sort of uh, situation is maybe being presented here. And then that's contrasted in the first story with this guy called the Colonel, um, who is more, more, uh, you know, upper class. And he has um, a a tree, an apple tree in his back garden that uh, Faisic is trying to steal apples from. And, that in itself is a very common comic book trope of the time, which we probably wouldn't see in comics today. This idea of children uh, wanting to steal apples, for example, it's a very, you know, it's something that you might think about more from the 50s, 60s, 70s. You don't really think about it now. It's hmm. a sort of a pastime from time, from days of yore, if you like, you know, it's not the sort of setup you would use today. Um, so it's quite interesting just to see that. Um And one of the things I reflected on was that some of the writers and artists around this time and which is common in comics is the idea of everything converging towards the end of the strip of the slap up feed. Yes. There's that that kind of comic book trope, you know, the the characters looking to actually get a pile of food because these strips are being written by artists and writers who went through rationing. Uh, and some of the earlier strips in the Beano and the Dandy, for example, would have been written during the times of rationing. So actually uh, having a, a big dinner at the end of a strip was a big deal for the characters. But again, it might be more, a bit more meaningless today in today's society. So those sorts of things are really quite interesting to me.
0: I think um, you're quite right. I think all that stuff is fascinating. The classic comic tropes of stealing food that kids yeah. were always doing in comics—they <laughs> were stealing pies or they were stealing apples. Uh, and if they did well, they would, you know, they would be rewarded with the slap-up feast uh, or Desperate Dan's cow pie or um, right. <laughs> you know piles piles of mashed potatoes with sausages sticking out of them. I always remember. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and again, in your notes, you you said about. Um... Ken Reid's wartime experiences, you know, he's a young man during the Second World War, he lives through austerity and rationing Mm. and all that. And that some of that seems to be reflected in his writing and his his work in these strips. And the other thing that really struck me was that, first of all, they managed to get Alan Moore to write a three-page introduction, which, you know, I I think that's quite remarkable, actually. I think this sort of, like, reflects... Mm the genius of Ken Reed and his influence. But in Alan Moore's introduction, he talks about 1950s and early 1960s Britain being in, uh, and I think he calls it post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Yeah, I think it's something, yes, yeah and I just wondered about how that you know comes out in some of these strips about characters struggling to get by in a way, even though it's just one page funnies but there's something about that, isn't there
1: yes, uh, yes, it's about creating fun for yourself and creating um, time to to do things you know there's that sort of sense of uh there aren't many distractions, which again if you, if you're looking at comics that Again, things in the Beano, um, another artist who I really admire and, and like the work of, who's very conservative in some respects, but is very, um, again, very creative and, and imaginative, like Ken is Dudley D. Watkins, for example. Yeah. If you look at some of his work, in the likes of R. Wally, and in, in even Lord Snooty and, and, and stories like that, you can see um, the same kinds of things going on. Uh, R. Wally's classic thing is that he's... What does R. Wally have? Well, he has a bucket you know, that, that he sits on. That's it. Otherwise, he has to create fun for himself with his mates, Fat Bob and Soapy. You know, so the, that's kind of the world that, that they're ensconced within. But the other thing that's interesting in Alan Moore's introduction is he talks, he actually compares Ken Reid a, a little to Spike Milligan. And I think actually that's a really interesting uh, comparison and, and quite a valid one, actually, because I think Spike Milligan's, I mean, famously Spike Milligan had to write one episode of The Goon Show every week and it kind of led to a mental breakdown and, and perhaps also um, on, the, on the back of, of having served in the war as well. I'm sure that probably fed into all that. Um, but it, it made me think about some of Ken Reed's quite manic writing, um, and how his, and, and his extraordinary stories and these flights of fancy, but it, there's, there's a hint of madness in the work for sure, which has maybe come out of uh, the, the, the need to come up with a story every week, um, but also those experiences that we talked about. And one of the things which I would have loved to know more about, and I couldn't see any information on, would have been, well, what was Ken Reed's experiences in the Second World War? Um, and I wonder what he saw, because you see these extraordinary creatures throughout physics, hmm. and I don't want to over, <laughs> you know, exaggerate the importance of this. But um, you, you do wonder how this all fed in, and and even something like Jonah, which is all about ships being sunk all the time, and you kind of wonder, well, what's the the what's maybe fed into what's influenced yeah. that, and are there war time experiences that maybe fed into even into Jonah, for example. Um, and, and again, you mentioned
0: that um, from interviews that he liked to sneak some right, some slightly disturbing, subversive <laughs> images into his comic strips, didn't he?
1: Yeah, there, there was one thing which was mentioned. I, I was trying to find the reference again this morning, but I did read it last night. I, I couldn't actually find the, the, the reference, but he, in the nerves... Again, this is the, this comic strip, which he seems to have been, that seems to be his apotheosis, if you like, you know, in terms of what he was able to do. Um, he actually, apparently, he snuck in a uh, a scene of a gallows in the background with a, with a nerve being hung on the gallows. Um, now, whether that was caught by the editor and taken out in time or whether it was published, I don't know. But again, that's extraordinary that he was able to get away with putting that into a kid's comic and perhaps maybe reflected I suppose sometimes you know you, you hear about other artists doing sort of similar things. Is it to do with boredom? Is it just to do with the little challenge to see what they can sneak past the sensors and, and the management? I don't, I'm not really sure what the motivation is, but you know that's quite a an extreme example there of of what uh, of what he could do. Um, I'll just say one more thing about Alan Moore. actually whenever I was just looking into some of the background, I came across an interview with him from 1987. And he was just asked to, uh, for response on Ken Reed's death. And he gives this nice glowing tribute about Ken Reed. And it ends with this extraordinary, very beautiful line. He says, um, I wish I could have said all this to Ken whilst he was still alive. That's a beautiful thing to say. Hmm. Um, and I really appreciate Moore saying that. Uh, there's also tributes by Pat Mills, tributes by Kevin O'Neill as well. You know, other big, big names. So he was certainly held in very high regard by I suppose, people who are regarded as legends now in in the comics industry.
0: Yeah, and I mean, they're mentioned on the back page, aren't they? Um, Alan Moore, obviously, John Wagner cited him, Pat Mills, and then particularly, I think, in the pages of 2008, Kevin O'Neill's madcap, grotesque, slightly scarily weird depictions (laughs) of characters is very
1: Ken Reid, isn't it? Mm, Yes, I think so. It's interesting, Pat Mills talks about whenever he was putting together 2000 AD, uh, he found found out after the fact that Ken Reed had submitted a one-page strip, a bit like, you know, the sort of, uh, well, you had Bongo from Beyond the Stars, didn't you, in, in early 2000 AD, which was a one-page Kevin O'Neill strip. And then you had things like Captain Clep, which I think, again, was Kevin O'Neill in, in Tornado. So this was something that Ken Reed had pitched, I think, to IPC for the back of 2000 AD. But it was basically about a guy who survives a nuclear war <laughs> and is then deciding, well, there's not much to live for, so I'm going to kill myself. And each week with, uh, I suppose, the, the whole... The whole uh, thing is that that he's prevented from killing himself by i think some deformity within his body, so it's quite an extreme I know. <laughs> disturbing uh, and you know maybe a trigger warning you know in terms of of uh, you know when talking about things like suicide um and 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 I'm kind of not surprised that uh, the powers that be at i p c held it back from Pat Mills because Pat Mills probably would have published it <laughs> you know? so, you know, but but they held it back from Pat. Uh, but it does sound, even for 2000 AD, that sounds really quite disturbing. <laughs> uh, absolutely
0: fascinating, yes. I mean, what would that have been like?
1: I'll just go back to the strip because the other thing
0: that struck me is, again, it's a very classic 70s British comics thing or 60s and 70s comics thing is the the relationship with adults and authority. So there yeah. are... Uh, there's classic school teachers in mortarboards and gowns who have flexible canes. There's <laughs> upper class toffs with their umbrellas. There's park keepers, which for some reason park keepers yes. were obviously <laughs> the, yeah. the menace of, for kids in those days. And then, of course, there's Faceache's father who has, mm. um, or f- there are fathers who have slippers in this book. And by, yes. by slipper, I mean it's the slipper they whack you with, isn't it?
1: Yes. Uh, absolutely so we, we've got this very common comic book trope again you, you, you if you were a kid in the 70s it would just uh, would be like water off a duck's back if you were reading a strip and and dennis amenis perhaps the most famous example whereas his, his dad would whack him with a slipper at the end and face again takes that on as well and there's unfortunately parent to child violence you know an adult to child violence is quite noted within face and and I suppose you would say that you have to think about the fact that this is cartoon violence that many children would have been very familiar with. Tom and Jerry, you know, the Roadrunner cartoons, things like that. It's in that kind of ethos, but it can get quite disturbing at times. Uh, there's one at the, the 4th of September, 1971. It actually ends with Faisic's dad kind of losing it, attacking his son. Uh, the police actually have to intervene. You see face dad in prison you see face in hospital all bandaged up you know and it's all kind of played for laughs um so these are sorts of images which are really quite disturbing to us now but actually at the time you probably would have you maybe not wouldn't would even have noticed it necessarily and one thing actually just to come back to buster as well um Whenever I I picked up the Leopard from Lime Street collection, I know you've had somebody on talking about Leopard from Lime Street, and I don't know if this was talked about. But one of the things which I found fascinating when I read through the collection, and I kind of had sort of forgotten about it as a kid, is his relationship with his uncle Charlie, uh, Billy Farmer's relationship with his uncle Charlie and Leopard from Lime Street, who's basically committing domestic abuse. Yeah. On his wife and on Billy, mm. um, and it's really and this is a comic for eight-year-olds, um, so it's, it's really quite disturbing. Uh, and 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 what was allowed to to, to be published in some respects. There's another actually episode as well early on where Fistic he turns into a Neanderthal or he has a Neanderthal look if you like, and he actually can't. Uh, on Scrunge <laughs> as, as he, he might say he can't get rid of the face so he's going around with this particular face and he b- bumps into this adult who has the identical face and he thinks the boy is taking uh, you know taking the mickey out of him I suppose and so what he does is he punches him in the face as a result so again you know you see these kinds of quite extreme uh, types of violence being portrayed within this comic which again you wouldn't see at all it just would be beyond the pale in 21st century society but it maybe show, uh, highlights a mirror to what was being was acceptable at the times and perhaps also the fact that actually uh, you know child abuse maybe wasn't taken just as seriously back in the 60s and 70s as perhaps it is now so you know there are interesting things which are reflective very much reflective of their times that you can see in this basic uh, cartoon
0: yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, as you say, it does reflect the times, and this sort of stuff was absolutely common sort of um, grist for the mill for for uh, British comics. Uh, Leopard from Lime Street. I, that was we did that with Keith Richardson, and of course, Keith Richardson is senior graphic novels editor at Rebellion, um, and I think we have him to thank for a lot of this. Treasury of British Comics uh, mm. stuff and bringing out these beautiful collections of it um, you've mentioned Dudley Watkins, we've talked about Leo Baxendale. obviously Ken Reid the genius of Ken Reid and a question I'd sort of proposed to you in email that I didn't really know the answer to and I, you know, I'm not sure we'll be able to answer but what is it about the British cartoon comics that just loves these grotesque caricatures of kids and adults these weird faces as alan moore says and adam's apples in necks that seem to have a life of their own (laughs) um sweating you know sweat coming off faces and little puffs of steam coming off to slap at meal at the end it's something peculiarly (laughs) british it seems to me
1: yeah, there's a, there's a very visual exaggeration. I know you mentioned in your email about thing, uh, characters like Hogarth, for example, you know, going back to the, what, the 18th century, I think. Yes. Was, that, was that Hogarth, you know? Uh, and so there, there's that great tradition of caricature, which has always been apparent within British comics. And I suppose caricature back then would have been reflective of ex- very much exaggerating characteristics in political figures. Um and in a way, that's maybe not what's happening with with face ache or, or with, with British comics, but they're exaggerating maybe social types. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about the adult characters, I think, in face is they kind of divide up into two different different characteristics. There's these sort of slightly sinister-looking adults, men in particular, with these very elongated chins lots of stubble, kind of shifty looking almost, you know, they, they don't look very trustworthy, you know, as adult characters. Um, and Certainly these sorts of, these thinner adult characters who, who sort of uh, look quite scary almost, uh, and people you think uh, are, are going to do a child harm. And maybe perhaps this is like a child's eyes view of what an adult looks like, perhaps, especially in a world where you are getting physically hit, you know, by, by adults. And, and then there's the... The, the softer uh, sort of rotund adults who have the, uh, you know, the softer chin line, but but the, the rounder face, uh, those are maybe slightly more sympathetically drawn, although SpaceX's uh, dad's one of those, it has the rotund face, but he's still quite nasty at times, you know? So it, it's, it's interesting just to see those sorts of, uh, those kinds of exaggeration, those kinds of characters that are being portrayed. And Ken's, art is is not particularly sympathetic or, or doesn't present his you don't necessarily warm to the character straight away on the basis of how they look um because they look quite they look quite threatening at times and that's perhaps part of the the dynamic within faceich face is a very there's, there's some quite tough moments in faceich there's uh there's some quite cynical moments in face you might even say there's there's a sense also that one of the things I really liked about, or one, some of the stories that I really liked in Face uh, were the stories where he starts off at the beginning where he wants to help somebody. He's doing something which is going to be helpful, this is going to be nice. And you think, well, this will all, uh, because he's being, because sometimes he can be nasty. Face is a funny character. He can be, on the one hand, he can be quite nice. On the other hand, he can be quite nasty. And sometimes in the, in the stories where he's nasty, you're thinking, well, there's a comeuppance coming and he's going to deserve the comeuppance but conversely when he's nice he still gets the comeuppance <laughs> you know it doesn't he doesn't uh, it doesn't always end well for him so there's one example for example early on there's a story where he and another uh, a friend of his want to trap this bully in an alleyway and so they set up this trap to trap the bully but the bully kind of snit um catches on that Faisic is trying to do this. And actually what he does is he chases Faisic down into the alley. And, and the other f- friend in the alley has set up a trap. But because Faisic goes down the alley instead of the uh, the, the bully who he's trying to frighten, uh, Faisic gets trapped in the trap and he actually gets flung into a bell tower where he ends up in the middle of a clock. And not only does he have this indignity of crashing through this uh, clock window face and ending up in the bell. But the bell then starts to ring because it's 12 o'clock. So, he, you know, he's getting his his head bashed uh, 12 times. And you think, well, why did he deserve that? He's trying to stop this bully. But there's a cruelty sometimes in, in Ken Reid's work, which is quite funny. But uh, again, I wonder, you know, is that sense of the world is an unjust place. Is that kind of informed by, by war years and things like that? You know, might be reading too much into it, but you know, it's one of the interesting things which, which recurs in FaceShake. If he starts off with all good intentions at the very beginning, it doesn't mean that it's going to end up well for him. He often ends up very negatively. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely
0: fascinating. And I, I do think, you know, the Alan Moore introduction gives us that, that context. I'll perhaps mention while we're at it that there's his son Anthony J. Reed's also done a uh, foreword, which is a page long, which is lovely as well, and talks about you know that piece of artwork he was working on when he passed away. Um, but yeah, I think you're quite right. The sort of there's a certain uh, there's a certain cruelty, there's a certain grotesque nature to it, and of course he's famous for doing these creepy creations and worldwide weirdies, which are in some sense is funny and then in other senses quite disturbing and, you know, scary in a way. And is that, you know, we, we've talked about Kevin O'Neill because that produces the same sort of thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are elements of FaceAche that you look at and you think, yeah, that's quite cruel. That's quite nasty mm. and scary in a way. Although, you know, some of it is just hilarious stuff as well. So, I, yes. just, you know, he just has this talent for putting this grotesque stuff on these individual pages uh and it's just amazing throughout so yeah it's a it's remarkable stuff i notice it does advertise creepy creations in the back of the book yeah um with a typical demented looking ken reed monster Um, absolutely fantastic so Buster, as a comic, um, I'm not terribly familiar with it, but of course it's extremely well remembered um, for some of these strips that were in it. Do you remember any of the other sort of uh, favourites from that time?
1: Yeah, I mean as I mentioned earlier, Ivor Lott and Tony Brook, which would have been one of my favourites. Uh, Chalky was was a I think was it was a very well liked story. This was a boy who drew. Um, images on a wall, and then they came to life. The images came to life. Um, there was Gums, which was a takeoff of Jaws. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember. Interestingly, one of the things I was reflecting on, because before I knew that Face it came originally from Jet comic, I kind of thought he might have come from Monster Fun, which was another comic which was amalgamated into Buster in the mid-70s. Uh, because it kind of made sense, because as as we've mentioned, you know, there's a lot of the grotesque about face ache. Uh But one of the strips in um, Monster Fun was something called Martha's Monster Makeup, which again was a Ken Reed strip. Um, and it was a female character. And one of the things that I I, I, meant, I read that actually he had uh, he didn't like drawing females so much. And actually, if you look at Mon- Martha's monster makeup, it, yeah, you can see it doesn't quite work as well as FaceIc. And what was interesting was that when Martha's, whenever Monster Fun merged with Buster, FaceIc was initially dropped. And Martha's monster makeup was came in with Monster Fun. But they kind of shifted that very quickly, and, and FaceAke was brought back. Um, and I think it's because, again, perhaps there, <laughs> there was, they could do more cruel things, maybe, with FaceAke than they could with Martha, perhaps. There was one of the interesting things about Buster and and also comics like Whoopi, Wizard and Chips, the The Beano and the Dandy. Uh, these are comics which are aimed at boys and girls, but the vast majority of characters in these comics are boys. It's very rare to see, or comparatively rare to see, uh, girls being the the, the uh, you know, the featured character, like Minnie the Minx would be maybe an exception. In Buster, at my time, it was Disappearing Tricks. That was the only female character I can remember being the main character. It tended to be boys who were portrayed, and again, perhaps that's... Uh, uh, reflects the the times um, and maybe not terribly well reflecting the times as well
0: and I'm just while we're talking about Buster I noticed that the Treasury of course did a core and Buster mm. humour special um, 2019 which has face ache on the cover and inside and I think on the back that's probably a Ken Reed one of his creepy creations on the back cover by the looks of it Um, yes it does look like it (laughs) it does doesn't it yeah fantastic stuff so there are other collections we've mentioned uh there is a creepy creations there is a football funnies and a worldwide weirdies i think there's a football funnies collection just come out just come out yes literally just come out have you got any of the other collections of his work yet
1: no i am quite interested in the football funnies one i think i probably will try and pick that up um I, as i mentioned to you earlier i might even go and try to get the uh one of the gazoops uh, collections uh the uh, i'm quite interested in reading the nerves <laughs> it sounds quite interesting
0: so uh robert let me turn you back to the artwork and let's talk about original artwork because there are a few pages of ken reed that i found on comic art fans interestingly hmm. Um I think a couple of them are owned by Julius Howe, who's a guest on this podcast from time to time. Okay. And in fact he's got a Ken Reed piece up for sale on eBay at the moment, um, which looks like uh it was either an unused creepy creation or possibly I think it might have been created for a series of tops cards or something like that, one of those collecting card games. Okay. Um but if there was artwork from this volume the first hundred scrunges what would be your grail page and why
1: yes uh, yeah thank thank you for that um i mean there was a there, there's a sort of a run i'll just briefly mention a runner-up <laughs> because i think it's such a good story there there's a great one on page 56 which is a um it's a nice sort of slightly satirical piece i think about uh, modern art uh there's two artists who are looking to well there, there, there's an under there's a a more Renowned artist and his understudy, and and the uh, the renowned artist is asking the understudy to uh, create a piece of modern art. You know, and he, he uses physics for that, um, with hilarious consequences. I'll not go into the story, but but actually, it's a it's a, it's a lovely uh, lovely page. But I, my favourite was page twenty, which is um, the jet story, seventeenth um, of July, nineteen seventy one, um, and I just thought it was a almost perfect piece of storytelling here and I really like this particular story and the setup is is that Faysaic has a pair of glasses so it, it, it shows the mischievous side of, of FaceAche here it's not one of the ones where he's trying to be good necessarily he's he's being he's being mischievous he uh, has a pair of glasses without lenses in them but he manages to persuade this young lad this other lad Timothy to put on the glasses. And he says, if you put these glasses on, you're going to see the fourth dimension. You know, you're going to see all these strange creatures. And of course he then mutates into some of his, into his scrunches, if you like, um, and and weird looking creatures to impress him and to make him think he's seeing something from another dimension. So he's going to get some money out of him because he's going to sell him the glasses. But what was also happening simultaneously, and again, highlights Reads great imagination and warped imagination is that there's a hybrid between a gorilla and uh, a rhinoceros in a local zoo. Of (laughs) course there is. (laughs) That has escaped. You know, it's a hybrid between a rhinoceros and a gorilla. It's actually, you can see him punching through the wall (laughs) and, he attacks face ache, but the boy with the glasses is thinking he's just seeing this fourth dimension. He's not seeing real life. So he's really fascinated. And face ache, this is really working. I can see this, this alien attacking this, this other creature and face is trying to get him to, you know, no, get, get me some help. Um, and one of the things that I love about the story is that it ends with the boy still with the glasses on, talking about how effective the glasses are, whilst we see FaceIC is completely um, beaten up <laughs> in the corner. Um, and so it's a perfect encapsulation of some of the common themes within Fisick that it's it's mischievous, it's it's inventive, it's imaginative, it's got warped storytelling, um, and it has a cruel ending if you like um where not only is face ache, uh beaten up but actually this other child is, is somewhat deluded as, as well it's, so it is quite cruel but but really uh, nice storytelling fantastic so i will post the images
0: of pages uh, 56 and page 20 when this episode comes out at the end of august um, and we will grant you those as your virtual grail pages in the uh, the art gallery of Mega City Book Club. Um, <laughs> I'm going to, I mean, I'll say thank you to Keith for putting page numbers in, because I'm going to turn you to page 108, dated the 17th of March, 1973. And this is a story where Face 8 does a full body scrunge. He wants yes. to collect money that's been dropped down drains so he turns himself yeah. into a nocturnal grid regular just <laughs> <not> like snake like <laughs> yeah. creature and then gets unfortunately gets hooked up or caught up in a bank robbery that's going on and as a policeman, you mentioned adults with their protruding chins. The policeman's chin <laughs> would give dread a run for its money, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it sort of has a good outcome for FaceAche, but he does go through, literally go through the ringer in a way, uh, in the process. So I'm going to pick that page um, from one of the later, the Buster and Jet ones. Um, and as I say, I'll post all these images. They're just, it is a book of just the most enormous fun. Um, mm. to, to go back to. And I am fascinated by those British cartoonists, you know, Reed, Baxendale, Watkins, and whether there is a link backwards to those caricaturists like Hogarth, mm. James mm. Gilray, who does that famous plum pudding caricature from the, uh, the 18th century. And then going forward, I think we can see it progressing, particularly in the work of Kevin O'Neill. Um, mm. artwork artwork that became that famous story became Kevin O'Neill's artwork becomes two too scary for dc comics doesn't it That's they just right. say <laughs> yeah <laughs> what could they do to uh, to tone down his work so we could publish it and then dc said nothing no it's all just too disturbing um <laughs> and i suppose that reminds me as you say that that the idea that ken reed was working on a strip that was just too disturbing um the guy trying to kill himself mm. after you know the, the mutant trying to kill himself after a nuclear attack um that's all I've got from my notes. Was there anything else in your notes that you wanted to cover, Robert? That we haven't got to?
1: No, not not really. I mean, there's there were a few other little things that we could have talked about, but it, you know, there's so much. So what I would say is, just, just there's so much to enjoy actually within this collection. It's well worth picking up. I, w- I would say if you've got an interest in British comics, if maybe you haven't, if if, if you're coming to British comics through 2000 AD, for example, and you haven't actually experience these com- these sort of more humour strips, um, perhaps thinking that per- coming from some like, from the likes of Buster might be a bit too childish. Well, this collection is certainly very rewarding for an adult to read. I would say you know there's it's incredibly detailed, it's um, inventive, imaginative, just so interesting to see, and, and the artwork is. Is always stunning uh, on each page, so it, it's well worth it's well worth uh, picking up if, if you're interested.
0: Fantastic stuff. So, Face ache, the first hundred scrunges, is available from the Treasury and two thousand eighty web store. Um, I think the hardback is now out of print. Uh, it's sold out, thank okay. goodness. But the paperback is ten ninety nine, or you can get it nine ninety nine digital. For some reason, I've ended up with both the hardback and the digital version. But there you go. <laughs> um, and it is, you know, highly recommended. Uh, hopefully, there'll be a volume two. But also, if you know when you read the other collections. I'd be very interested to hear from yourself, Robert, or from other listeners as to which other Ken Reid collections I should be getting next. Um, I will have to look at those um, football funnies and the uh, Worldwide Weirdy Weirdie collections, which are out, I think. Yeah. Fantastic stuff, Robert. Thank you so much for picking it. What a delight. And, uh, you know, what an interesting insight into one of British comics' great geniuses. Um, and also such an interesting time as well when they produced... Those strange comics with all those um, <laughs> uh, classic tropes, which actually now look a little bit disturbing and strange mm-hmm. to us Definitely. from the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Guest projects, times, Robert. Now you did share with me an article that you'd written for Comics Grid about, of all things, uh, is it Annasenti's run on Daredevil? Is that right?
1: That's correct, yes. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've got a great interest in American comics as well. I've always been interested in uh, the likes of Daredevil. Um, I was particularly keen on Anne Nocenti's run. I mean, one of the things which really interests me about that particular run is, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I suppose she was one of the first uh, female writers actually on Daredevil and, and, and on a was a Marvel superhero, male superhero in particular, back in the 1980s? Uh, but there's a lot of social commentary within her work. There's a lot about gender roles of of men and women, feminism. There's actually quite a lot of really interesting stuff about childhood, actually within that run, which I think, which I find fascinating. So again, it was just something that I wanted to to write about, about just to highlight some of the complexity of of the writing there. And as you say, that article is on uh, Comics Grid. Um, I'd, I'd quite like to write some more stuff about childhood, actually, on how childhood is portrayed in comics. That that's one of the things that, that I'd, I'd like to try to, to look at in the future. Uh, so hopefully that that will come to pass. I will not guarantee it, but, but, but yeah, certainly that would be something I would be interested in doing in the future.
0: And no, and the run on Daredevil. That was great stuff. And it, would I be writing, thinking quite a lot of John Romita Jr. artwork in there? Correct, yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. The, the, that was w- one of the foremost arti- artists on her run, for sure.
0: And I will put a link to your article in the show notes for this episode, so people can look there and follow the link. The Comics Grid Journal of Comics Scholarship, I confess uh, I wasn't terribly familiar with it. Um, they, but obviously they do do, or they, do they take submissions um, on pieces about comics?
1: Well, they're they're a peer reviewed academic journal, right? Uh, so it's uh, yeah, I mean they they will absolutely take submissions, but uh, yeah, they, you need to just check the, the guidelines as to to what is to be submitted. As it's, it w- will need to be quite a, a rigorous piece of writing. Uh, in terms of uh, if you're if you're looking to get something published by the, by Comics Grid, but as, as I said, it's, it is a genuine academic online academic journal, uh, but fully accessible to members of the public for sure. It's not just a, yeah, it's not just academics who who can see it.
0: And you said you might write something about depictions of childhood in comics. Um, I'm going to suggest that there might be a few examples within this very volume of this <laughs> oh, peculiar. Well, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, th- th- that's something that I'm interested in particular in, in British comics around the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, uh, yeah, the things that we've talked about. Basically, I, th- I think there's, I-, I think there's scope to even write a, a chapter on the likes of R. Wally, for example. You know, there's there's a lot that could be said about about what that character represents over over time about childhood and, and changes in childhood. So yeah, I better not say any more. It's just it's just an idea at this at this stage, I'm and to be honest. <laughs> well, when you've
0: written it and it's published, do please share it so I can share it on the Megacity Book Club feed or come back and tell me about it as well because, you know, um I think I do think that's you're quite right. It's a fascinating subject, the depictions of childhood or or pubs, you know, yeah, the lived experiences of childhood through comics from that mm. particular time. Mm. Um anything else you've written at the moment, Robert, or is that it?
1: No, that's mainly it. You know, uh, I'm sort of, uh, I suppose, beginning my own um, engagement with comics scholarship, if you like, you know, so um, it's not my primary discipline, but it's uh, something that that I'm definitely interested in.
0: Fascinating. Well, I look forward to uh, hopefully getting more links in the future and uh, maybe we'll talk about more representations of childhood in other comics at some point on the book club.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Simon. No,
0: thank you, Robert. Thank you for giving up your time. And um, it's been a delight to talk about face Age and to talk about the genius of Ken Reid. Uh, do check it out. Do read the wonderful Alan Moore introduction uh, and have a look at the scrunges because they're just fantastic. and thank you to everyone for listening to megacity book club as ever find all the links including links to robert's published work at megacitybookclub.com follow the podcast on facebook twitter instagram spotify and the 2080 forums or email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you've got a book choice of your own that you want to get in touch and come on the book club to talk about just like robert did and uh it's produced some great discussion i think so thank you very much And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and.
1: That's goodbye from me.